stand together and let's read from the passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verses 1 through 8. Ephesians 4. Uh, just, let's just do 1 through 6 this morning. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. The words are on the screen. This is where we begin our series on the power of one. It's where we've launched this study on the power of one as we have sat down and described each and every one of these descriptions of what it means to be one, one body, one spirit, one Lord, one baptism, one faith. And so we're going to read this as a launching pad for where we're going from this point on. So Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And everybody said, as to the word of the Lord, let's pray. Father, thank you for the joy that is ours to be able to stand physically in your presence, to honor you and honor your word. And we do stand, actually, before you without much to say because your word says it all. Strange, as the song says that it is, that we stand silent, waiting this morning to hear from you. And I pray, Lord, that as we have read your word, that you would speak through your word by the power of your spirit that resides in each and every one of our hearts the hearts of those who have placed their faith and trust in you as Lord and Savior. They've been endowed with incredible presence of the Holy Spirit that enables and empowers your word to transcend just knowledge, but to be applied into wisdom that can be applied into our lives so that we might leave this place transformed by your spirit taking your word and bringing it into the applications that are necessary and needed in our individual lives and in the corporate life of your church called Emmanuel. Thank you for this passage today. Use it to edify the believer and to strengthen your church, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Let me ask you something real quick as we start. How many of you read or are presently reading books to your children? Anybody? Okay, some of you, it's been a long time, right? You did read or you are presently reading Books for your children. Now, this group over here, probably the hands didn't go up, but probably you're, you're reading books at school, right? Right. That's what I thought. It's important for children to be read to, by their parents when they're in their early developmental years. And Patty and I read to our children early on. I mean, before they even started their own vocabulary, we gave them books. My wife is a very literary person. I am not quite as literary as she is, but she loves books even more than I do because she's a teacher. And because of her being a teacher, we see the importance of helping our kids get a leg up on all the other children in school. And so we want them to understand the, uh, the vocabulary. We want to increase their vocabulary. We want them to learn to read early on in their developmental years so that as they grow up, they grow up with books. They grow up reading books, and, and they understand how to, 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 to speak the words that are important to speak. So when they do go to school, they have a little bit of a leg up on other kids. Because there are some parents who do not read or practice reading to their children on a consistent basis, but we did. 
And one of the familiar books that I like, actually there are two, I own one of them myself, it's called The Pokey Little Puppy. Anybody have that book? I got that book. I have one in my library, The Pokey Little Puppy. I like that book. He's pokey, but he eventually gets there anyway, right? He's slow, but he arrives at some point. It doesn't matter how you get there as long as you, as you arrive, right? Some of you are living that right now, right? That's what I thought. And the other book that we read a lot was the book that I liked called The Little Train That Could. Anybody have that book? The Little Train That Could. It's a little book, a short story, has more pictures than it has words about a train that is weighed down with a lot of cargo and a lot of, a lot of things and animals and stuff. And, and it's beginning, in the, as you begin the story, it's beginning to, to climb a hill and it's, come on, you know, the, you do that with your kids, they like it, they start it too. And the train says, as it's trying to carry all that weight uphill, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, until that just rings in your head to you think about it at night even while you're trying to go to sleep. I think I can. And as the train is starting to rise up, it continues to say at each page, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And it gets to the very top and it just... You know, just kind of goes that slow, I think. And then it finally gets to the top, right? And it makes it way on the other And it says what? And so you know, I know I could, I knew I could, I knew I could, I knew I could. Right? It's a great moral story for children and adults. Although it has a, a hole in its concept. While that is a good value lesson book that teaches children that no matter what the odds, the circumstances, or the situation, they can still achieve great things in spite of tremendous odds. No matter what the weight, the barrier, or the pressures of life, they can still climb that hill and make it to the top and succeed. Great story. However, there's a fallacy in that book in that for us as believers, we believe that there's no way in the world that you can make it nor exist much less succeed independently and apart from other people. No man is an island. And it's for that reason that God connected us together in the body of Christ. And he wants us to commit to a church family and to connect and commit to a life group. Can I get amen, Brother Gail? That's what I thought. And if you're not connected to a life group in this church, you need to because you need to congregate and associate and fellowship and work alongside and encourage each other in a small group and the large group. And because that is necessary and very needed for us because you cannot, nor were you designed to succeed or to live life independently of other believers. And there are other people that are smarter and more talented than me and you who have tried and they have failed. You cannot succeed, you cannot live, you cannot move in this Christian life disconnected from the body of Christ and other believers. There's another thing that I want us to talk about, though, as we talk about the one spirit in this text. Not only are we, is it necessary that we connect and commit to the body of Christ and other believers, it's important that we understand our connection and our commitment to the one spirit. Because God understood that there was no way in the world that you and I, in and of ourselves, in our own strength, would be able to live out the life that he's calling us to live. How many of us think that following Christ with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, to give me everything you got, is virtually impossible? Anybody want to raise your hand with me? 
Is it possible to live out this life as demanded in this book by ourselves? You can't make it by yourself. You can't succeed by yourself. And in your best effort, you will always fail and always fall short. God never intended for you as a believer, as a Christ follower, to do it on your own. Not only did he give give you this this thing called the family of God, the body of Christ to connect and commit to, but he also gave us an indwelling presence called the Holy Spirit, a presence that he gave us at conversion. For the moment you and I place our faith and trust in Christ, it was the Spirit who called us unto God. It is the Spirit who convicted us of our sin. It is the Spirit who cleansed us of our sin. It is the Spirit who now connects us not only with the Father but also with other believers. And it's that same Spirit now that empowers us individually and corporately to fulfill not only the mission that God gave us but the ministry that God has called us to fulfill. We need the Spirit of God. He is an important aspect, I hate to use the word element, but he is an important person of the triune God that is necessary. But many times in the Baptist church, he is the least person talked about in the Trinity. Now for some of you who have a hard time with a concept called Trinity, Trinity is simply God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, all three gods, one person. Not separate entities, but one individual, one person. And I don't care how you try to illustrate it, explain it. No, no matter what illustration, explanation you try to use, it doesn't work. Well, it's like the egg. It's the shell and the white and the yellow all at one. No, it's not. Those are separate entities, separate elements. They're not the same. They're not one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are one. Not separates, but one. And our salvation is a Trinitarian salvation where God the Father had a role, God the Son has a role, but also God the Spirit has a role. And he has a role in this passage in that he is the empowerment, the enablement for us, the indwelling presence of God that enables us to move forward, not only as individual members of the body of Christ, but corporately as a church. And wherever the Spirit of the Lord is absent, you find disunity, disharmony, disruption, and all kinds of things that that, that just simply go wrong. And so I want us to take a look at the text as we find this this whole concept of being one, where we're talking about the one spirit. Let's go to the empowerment of God through his spirit. Let's go to the points in the text, and I want you to remember them. We're just going to be able to scratch the surface here. I don't have time to go deep. I I don't. I've, I've got seven points and about 60 minutes. All right, 60 points in 15 minutes. You like that better? Well, that ain't going to happen. I'm sorry to disappoint you. It's Thanksgiving, so we give it our best. We're just going to scratch the surface here. I have seven points that I want to talk about where we systematically take a look at where the Apostle Paul, led of the Spirit of God, mentions the Holy Spirit and the significance of the Holy Spirit not only bringing us together as one, but empowering us individually and corporately as a church in order to fulfill the ministry that he has for each of us to fulfill as the body of Christ and the mission that he's called us to fulfill in a lost world. Without the Spirit... And the enablement and the empowerment and the infusion of the spirit that comes to the believer and to the church. We are impotent, powerless, incapable of doing 
what God has called us to do and being the church that God wants us to be. He is that critical and that crucial to us individually and to us corporately. So let's take a look at the text and say, I'm empowered by God's Spirit when I, number one, recognize the Spirit's activity. When I recognize the Spirit's activity. Take a look at the text in verse 1 of the book of Ephesians. Now remember, it's a systematic. We're going to go, there are 12 references to the Holy Spirit in the book of Ephesians. And we're going to combine them into seven. Number one, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. I must recognize the Spirit's activity. Notice what the Spirit is saying through the penmanship of the Apostle Paul in verse 13, chapter 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now skip down to the same sort of context in chapter 2. Beginning with verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are, notice he said, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Notice in this incredible text here, he's wanting them to recognize two things. First of all, he's wanting them to recognize in the context of Ephesians, in the whole letter that he's writing to the Ephesus church, he's saying to them, I want you to understand that your salvation is secure. In other words, once you are saved, you are forever safe. You're eternally secure. And the salvation that you have is for all eternity. It is yours to possess forever. You can never lose it, forfeit it, and, and just sin to the point where it's no longer yours. You can, I believe, even deny your salvation and you can't lose it because it's yours. I, let me say, my name is Charles Boswell. And the reason why it's Boswell is because I was birthed by Ronald Boswell and Marlene Boswell. And my name is Boswell. Why? Because of who I'm related to. That can never, I can change my name legally to Charles Smith. But does that change who my father is? Or my mother? You can't ever change once you've been birthed into the family. It is forever sealed and secured. And what he's saying here is that he's wanting us to understand that our salvation is secure. The Spirit of God seals our relationship to the Father. He is the seal. The word seal here is a word that was used in, in the ancient language for an insignia on a ring. And it was an insignia that was sometimes placed in wax, and they printed that insignia on that wax to prove the authentication of that document. You have the seal of the Holy Spirit that authenticizes who you belong to because of the Spirit of God that resides in you. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, it's because you're not saved. He's not a second blessing. It's not something that happens after salvation. It is something that happens simultaneous with salvation. The charismatics have it wrong. It is not a second blessing. For if you do not have the Spirit of Christ in you as the witness that you have been saved and converted and cleansed and you are now grafted in the family, then you're not grafted in the family and you're lost and you need to be saved today. And it says here that he is our seal. But secondly, notice that this salvation is to be shared because if you remember the context that we've been talking about for the last couple of Sundays is this, that there's a, there's a dichotomy, there's a, a struggle between Jew and Gentile. And there's these Jewish converts who are having a hard time embracing these Gentile converts, these Gentile believers. And by tradition, 
And because of their heritage and their nationality, they are refusing to embrace these Gentiles as believers. And what Paul is saying here, you need to now recognize the Spirit's activity. There's no longer Jew nor Gentile. There's only one body called the body of Christ. There's one church. There's no rich, nor poor, no haves, no have-nots, no no nothing, no Jew, no Gentile. It does, we are all one in Christ, and you need, you need to recognize that. How many of you watch the commercials that are going around? Some of them are pretty obnoxious, aren't they? But there's one commercial about a guy who's trying to put a, a fence gate onto a concrete post, and he, it doesn't stick. <laughs> and, it, and here comes this big gorilla. You've seen that commercial? And he hands him something called Gorilla Glue. And it says that it bonds with both and it brings them together as one. And once it does that, it claims it's, in, it's inseparable. Anybody, can you testify that that's true? Anybody, can I have a witness? I don't always believe commercials. Do you? I don't. And I've yet to buy any Gorilla Glue. But... Uh, it's a pretty impressive commercial about this. Why would you even name a glue named Gorilla anyway? I don't know. It's because it's strong or something. Pretty ugly. Anyway. When, when God seals us to Christ through the Spirit, and when God brings you and you and you and us together as one, we are eternally and indefinitely sealed together by the Spirit of Christ and we can never be divided, nor can we ever be separated. We were always, for eternity, bound and bonded together with more than gorilla glue. It's called the seal of the Holy Spirit. And so here we have this recognition that he's wanting them to recognize. There's not Jew and Gentile, guys. It's one. We are one. And once they recognize the Spirit's activity and bring them together, they then need to receive the Spirit's activity. There's a receptivity here, and the receptivity is found in chapter 1, now skipping down to verse 16. He's wanting them to receive something. What must they receive? They must receive the information. They must receive the understanding that the Spirit of Christ is going to bring into their lives to make them one. Notice verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Jump down again to chapter 3. Same context, same idea, verse 4 and 5. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It talks about the work of the Spirit here, and the work of the Spirit is to bring understanding and to illuminate our understanding so that we can conceptualize these incredible truths that God wants to bring transformation not only into our lives, but transcend all of these, these traditions and all of these preferences into one. Now notice what he says here. There are three words, wisdom, revelation, and mysteries. Three difficult words. And in order for us to understand what he's saying here, we need to understand what these words mean. The word mysteries here is a word that simply means something that you did not know. If you don't know something, then it's a mystery to you. It's not a mystery in some cosmos, some up there that's just mysterious in that regard. The word here simply defined is, if you don't know it, it's a mystery to you. 
And because it's a mystery to you, this truth that I'm saying is, is unfamiliar to you, then you need the wisdom and the revelation of the Lord. The word revelation simply is a word that simply means something that God tells you. In other words, you cannot know God unless God reveals himself to you. You did not wake up one morning and decide to save yourself. You didn't wake up one morning and decide to know God. Even with the Bible, even as a Christ follower connected to the Father, every aspect of your understanding of who God is, it's because God revealed it to you through the revelation of his spirit. God took the word, opened your mind, gave you the understanding so that you could understand what God is saying. For example, how many of you in here think you know me? Anybody? I've been here almost seven years now. Why don't you know me? When in order for you and I to get acquainted, if you to know me, it would take time for us to spend a lot of time one-on-one together, and I would reveal to you my thoughts, my characteristics, my personality, and those kinds of things, right? I would have to reveal myself to you. Some would say, well, you're not worth that much time. I get it. In order for you to understand who God is, God has to reveal himself to you. You can't just, in and of yourself, wake up one day and decide you're going to know God. For example, how many of you have seen Sherlock Holmes? I like the new one. The new ones are pretty cool. And what is the phrase that Sherlock Holmes always says to Watson? It's elementary, my dear Watson. Right? It's like, dude, wake up and get a clue, man. Uh, You're a little slow, man. You're like the pokey little puppy. You've not even gotten there yet, and I've been there like 10 minutes, and I'm waiting on you. What, is, what, is, what does he do? What does Sherlock he He looks at the facts, rationally puts the facts together, and then comes up with a rationale to the truth. You know, there are a lot of people that try to know God that way. Let me just save you some time. Put your reason and your rationale aside and come to God completely open-minded and open-hearted and say, you know what, Lord? I rationally cannot understand you because there's some concepts and aspects about you that, are, that just blow my mind, man. I need you to reveal yourself to me. Show who you are to me because maybe some of the concepts and ideas and opinions that I have of you and your spirit are not biblical. They're traditional. They're baptistic. Or they're of my own making. But we need to understand that he is the one who reveals himself to us Because he takes that revelation and then he applies it to the word wisdom. Wisdom is simply a word that helps us understand it's applied truth, applied knowledge, applied understanding. Someone isn't wise simply because they know a lot of facts about God. Someone is wise because they take those facts, they take those truths, they take those revelations and they apply them to everyday life so that they then can reflect the likeness of Christ and progress in their Christian faith. That's what wisdom is. The application of truth and the application of knowledge. For there are a lot of people I'm convinced that have spent a a lifetime in Sunday school. And they can quote chapter and verse. And they can tell you a lot of facts and a lot of truths about the Bible. And yet fail to experience him on a personal level. Because they've not applied those truths into their personal lives. So they can then reflect that application of that truth in growing into the likeness of Christ. There may be someone in your life group or someone you may know that can quote chapter and verse and they got it down, but they can live like the devil 
as if they didn't even know him. How is that possible? You can know the facts and the truth about God, but unless you apply that wisdom and apply truth into your life, it's really useless, isn't it? And so he's saying, who empowers us to do that? It's the Spirit of Christ. And he's saying to them, you need to receive this revelation. You need to apply this wisdom. I know it's a mystery to you, but, but take into consideration what the Spirit is saying, and I want you to implement this truth, because what he is saying to them is it defies their traditions, and it's a revelation that has been given to him through the revelation of the Spirit of God, and I know it's a mystery to you, but embrace it and go with it because it comes from God. So there's a receptivity to the Spirit's activity in our lives that sometimes we're just, we're just not receptive of what the Spirit wants to bring into our lives. So therefore, we, we, we lose out individually and we lose out corporately if we're not receptive to what the Spirit wants to bring into our understanding and into the application of our lives. Thirdly, we need to reflect the Spirit's activity. There's a reflection here in chapter 2, verse 20, again, where the Spirit is mentioned. And we're going to skip down now to verse 20. He changes his metaphor in this text, and he talks about a building, a structure. Verse 20 says, But build on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, capital S-P-I-R-I-T, spirit, the spirit. Notice he says there are three things that I want us to remember in this particular text. The word permanent, the word pure, and the word purpose. Can you remember that? Permanent, pure, and purpose. For time's sake, he wants to talk to us in this text about the permanent dwelling that God has into our hearts the permanent indwelling of his presence through the Holy Spirit. As I've already mentioned, and he's going to mention several times in many other different passages, once you possess the Spirit, you can never lose the Spirit. He's always there. Now, granted, there may be times in your life where he's probably like that, that little, um, oh, I, I can't remember the word right now, the inside of your fireplace, you have just a little, a little light. What's it called? The pilot light. Sometimes the Spirit's kind of as small as a pilot light, but your pilot light will never go out. There are times when he says to one of his, his, his disciples, he said, fan into flame the Spirit of God. There are times when the Spirit of God is like a full flame in your life, but he's always either a full flame or he's a pilot light or something in between. He never goes out, he never disappears, and he never vacates your heart and your life. You have an indwelling presence of the Spirit of God that is permanently implanted in you that cannot be lost, stolen, or misplaced. It's permanent. Not only is it permanent in this text, but he says, because you're a dwelling place, you must be a pure dwelling place. He talks about in this text about a holy temple. And he's saying and suggesting to his readers and to us today, he's not suggesting, he's commanding, that if we are to be a permanent dwelling of the Spirit of God in our lives, where God actually resides in us, and we are his temple, then we must be a pure, clean, holy temple. Who of you wants to come to church to a dirty church? What if you came and we never cleaned it? And all of your stuff that you just, Baptists are dirty people. I've told James that several times and Lily who clean our facilities. My first job in a church was a custodian. Then I got demoted to senior pastor. 
And I'm convinced that as Baptists, we're, but we love to come into a clean place, into a clean. We are the temples of the Holy Spirit of the Lord. And it is the Spirit's job to cleanse us. He convicts us of sin, and it is his job to cleanse us of our sin so that we then present ourselves as a pure dwelling place for the presence of God. Our bodies are not our own. We are living sacrifices. The temple of the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, I wish I could camp there a lot longer, but I don't have time. The word purpose. For what purpose is he cleansing our lives? It is the Spirit's job so that as he begins to perfect us, add things and take away things, that eventually we reflect the image of Jesus. The image of Jesus. The other day, Pat and I were talking to, uh, to Matt, our oldest son, and his fourth child is a boy. He's less than uh, 16 months old, something like that. And as he's growing older, we commented that he's looking more and more and more, as he grows older, like his dad. He reminds me, of his dad when he was small. Now, his first son didn't remind us so much. I felt like he looked more like the mom than the dad. And now he's had two twins, and now his fourth child is Canna Knox. Why would you name a kid Canna Knox? There's a whole other reason for that. But Canna Knox, I mean, he walks, he acts more and more like his dad. Why? Because he's his father's son. And he can't help but reflect the image of his father. It's natural. It's natural for the Spirit of God to work and to operate in our lives so that as we grow in Him, and the Spirit, His purpose is to grow us and move us and to progress us into the likeness of Jesus Christ so that we more and more grow in His likeness and into His image. And we must reflect then on a continual basis, more and more, the activity of the Spirit to make us more and more like Jesus. That's His role, is to make you more and more like Christ. Number four, we need to redeem the Spirit's activity. There's a redemption process here, and the word redeem here simply means to cash it in. It simply means to exchange my power for his power. For as I have mentioned earlier on in the opening statement of our study today, you cannot achieve and you cannot succeed, you cannot move, you cannot progress independently of God and his spirit in your own strength and in your own power. You must exchange your work ethic, your power, your ability for his. While there is a mutual submission and while I have a responsibility to obey and to respond and to yield and all of that, yet it is his responsibility to move me and to grow me and to develop me. Paul is about to ask of them what he knows is impossible unless God intervenes through, his, through the power of the Holy Spirit. For what he's about to ask of them, unless God's power manifests itself and transforms their lives and transcends this prejudicial thing that they're having, there's no way in the world that it's ever going to happen. It's not going to work. And he knows that. And because he knows that, he says this in verse 16. He says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length, I mean, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Know to, now to him who is able to do more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. That's, that's a, several messages by itself. But Paul is praying that the Spirit would impute or 
impart power. He wants, he wants the Spirit to infuse them with a power that rises above their prejudice. And he knows that unless the Spirit of God does this, there's no way in the world that it's going to become a reality. What is he asking the Spirit to do? He's saying, Holy Spirit, I am relying upon you to infuse and to inject and to impart this power so that they might understand the fullness of the love of Christ. He's wanting them to understand the love of Christ. And the only way that they can understand the depth and the height and the the breadth and all that is encompassing in the incredible, amazing love of Jesus is through the power and the infusement of the Holy Spirit. Why would he want that for them? Because he knows that when the Spirit infuses and imparts this understanding of the love and how deep the love of God is for them, that that same power will then infuse and impart that love for each other. For he knows how hard it is for humans to love humans. And apart from the empowerment and the enablement of the Spirit of God, love is impossible. At least the kind of love that is descriptive and that is reflective then of the body of Christ. How will they know us? By our How will they know us? By our love. I know what it is about some of you, but you're just flat out hard to love. Aren't you? I said, well, Pastor, you're not easy to love either. Really? I think I'm pretty easy to love with, to live with and to love. And so everybody else has got the problem. You know, the human factor has a tendency to cause us to be difficult, doesn't it? It does. And the only way that we can love each other, the way that we're supposed to love each other, is when the Holy Spirit infuses me with this understanding of how deep the love of the Father is for me. Because when I begin to grow in the depth of my understanding of his love for me, it helps me love you more. Because I understand the depths of his love for me. And that while I was still a sinner, yet he died for me. He loved me before I loved him. And in spite of my rejecting and resistance and rebellion and my sin, yet he chose to die on a cross for my sin against the Father. And he took upon himself sins that he did not deserve. And he died in my place. Why? Even before I loved him, he loved me. Even before I knew him, he knew me. He saw me. And he called me, undeserving as I was, unto himself. And he, he convicted me of my sin and cleansed me of my sin and brought me now into right relationship with the Father. And that is a, a Depth of love that I, quite frankly, have a hard time understanding. And if we think we understand it, we need to ask God to help us understand it more. Because when we understand it to its depths, it helps us understand how we then are to love and to relate to one another. For Jesus said, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, and all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. How hard is that? And so here we have a fellowship that is in desperate need of the Spirit infusing the understanding through the power of the Holy Spirit of how deep the Father's love is for them because I'm convinced they're having a hard time loving each other. How do you know that? When we see point number five, if we are to be empowered by God's presence, we need to represent the Spirit's activity. We need to represent the Spirit's activity. Notice what it says in chapter 4, verse 30. Again, the Spirit is mentioned. He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Apparently, Paul is writing to some people here who are in the present active. They are 
right now, as he is writing this letter to them, are presently grieving the Holy Spirit. How are they grieving the Holy Spirit? By their actions and their attitudes toward each other. They're grieving the Holy Spirit. Paul said in in 1 Thessalonians, do not quench the Holy Spirit. They were not only grieving the Spirit, but I believe when you grieve the Spirit, you quench the Spirit. How do we grieve the Spirit and quench the Spirit? When we don't treat each other with the love that we've received from the Father, when we reciprocate that love toward each other. Obviously, there were some people that were not conversing to one another very well. If you read before this passage, there were some, some things that were coming out of their mouths that were, that were not pleasing to the Spirit. And what they were saying and how they were living and how they were treating each other were, was grieving the Spirit. The word grief means sorrow. It implies sadness. It implies hurt. It applies, implies offense and even suffering. Now, it's hard for us to conceptualize a person in the Holy Spirit that grieves. We, we hear a lot about God grieving over sin, and we hear about the grief of Christ on the cross, but very seldom, if very rarely, we ever hear about the Holy Spirit grieving, being sorrowful, being quenched by the activity of the people of God. And he's saying that you need to represent, he saved you, he has sealed you, and now you must submit to him. Submit to him. He's no longer in control of your actions and your attitudes, your characteristics toward each other. A couple of years ago when I was a pastor of a church, we took a group of people overseas to Europe. I don't know if you ever know, but there's a lot of difference between Europeans and Americans. There, there is. They're quieter. Um, they're not quite as, as loud as we are, or, or should I say obnoxious as we are, or as demanding as we are. They're a little, they're, it's a different culture there. I remember being on a, pl- a train one time. We were traveling, and, and uh, Patty and I were traveling by ourselves on our 30th anniversary, and you could tell who the Americans were. They were the loudest people on the train. I mean, they were loud. Europeans are not that loud. But uh, we took some students overseas with us. We were on a mission trip, and we knew that they would be staying in people's homes. And we asked them to behave rightly. I mean, when you're a guest as an American in a, in a foreign country, in a European home, you just there's certain things that just aren't acceptable. You know what I'm saying? Eat what's put in front of you. Be polite. Say thank you. Be nice. Don't be loud. Don't be obnoxious. And there was a certain young man who went to a home that we sent him to. This lady was was very wealthy. She was a chef in this country and cooked what she thought was were wonders before this young man. And he refused to eat it and kept telling her what he liked and he didn't like. After the trip, when we find out about it, we discussed between ourselves, myself and the student pastor, this young man's not coming on one of these ever again with us. Why? He was not a good representative of the Christian culture that we wanted to represent as Americans to people we were trying to reach for Christ. You and I represent not just ourselves. We don't represent Emmanuel. We represent Jesus. 
And how we act and how we live and how we treat each other is representative of the spirit and activity of the spirit in our lives. And when you don't treat people the way they deserve to be treated because of who they are in Christ, that is a reflection of the spirit's inactivity in your life. When you're nasty and rude and mean and crude and, and abusive and ugly, that just tells everyone around you, Spirit's not active in their life today. And I'm convinced that sometimes what we represent is anything other than the activity of the Spirit. And he says, represent the Spirit's activity. Sixthly, he says, we need to renew the Spirit's activity, to renew the Spirit's activity because after you've grieved the Spirit, what do you need? You need a filling of the Spirit. And the, the church in Ephesus was definitely in need to be filled with the Spirit. He says in chapter 5, verse 18, he says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He says, be filled. That is to be constantly or continually filled. This is not the same filled that is the word that is used in the book of Acts. It's a different word. So don't take Acts, the word filled by the Spirit, and two, and then make it mean the same thing here in Ephesians chapter 5. It's a totally different word. And the word here is a word in which it is in the present imperative sense. And what it means here is that we are to be continually filled. Why? Because you leak. You leak. I mean, you've got holes all over your body that God made you, and you leak. And your carnal nature causes you then to, to leak out this infilling of the Spirit of God. And he says then that the Spirit of God here in the lives of these believers is not the dominant force. There is a force that is operating outside of it that is affecting their hearts and their souls and their lives that's causing them not to reflect the character and the nature of not only the Spirit, but the Spirit of Christ and be a good representative of the Father. There's a, a controlling element that's, that's influencing them that's not representative of the Spirit of the Lord. And as a result of that, he's saying that they must then die to that element. They must repent of that source. They must resist that pull and that draw and stop that whatever it is. And some would say that it's alcoholic beverages, but I think it's much more than that because if you take the whole context of Ephesians, you'll find that there's much more in the life of this church that is causing this church than to be in need of a refilling, a renewing of their relationship with the Lord through submission to the Spirit. The Spirit is not in control. They're not keeping in step with the Spirit. They're not walking in the, in the fullness of the Spirit. They're not complying to the Word of God that is directing them and, and telling them how they ought to live. And so as a result of that, they need to renew the Spirit's activity, which brings us then to the final point. Once the Spirit is renewed, we can then release the Spirit's activity. You just release it. You just let it go. You just let Him operate. You don't constrain Him or hold Him. You just release Him. How do you do that? Notice in Ephesians chapter 6, very quick. In all circumstances, you might want to underline that. 
in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Spirit's mentioned once, talk, uh, not once, but twice. Talk about the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit, and praying at all times in the Spirit. I wish we had time to talk a lot about that, but we don't. But what we do know by this text, and it's familiar to most of us who've been in the church at any length of time, is that this passage in Ephesians 6 talks about spiritual warfare. We have a spiritual enemy, we're in a spiritual battle, and because of that, we need spiritual weapons. We need an armory that's a spiritual armory that we can utilize then to combat the spiritual forces that are planning against us, that are scheming against us, that are trying to destroy our faith and render us powerless and ineffective in our development and our growth as believers. And there are two elements that I want to mention today because of time sake that, that are mentioned here that have direct and indirect reference to the Spirit. One of them is indirect and one of them is direct. And the indirect reference to the Spirit is in the sword of the Spirit. The correct translation here should be a small s, not a capital S, because it doesn't directly reference the Holy Spirit. Although, indirectly, it does reference the Holy Spirit. Because in the midst of warfare, in the midst and in the heat of the battle, what we need is we need the sword of the Spirit. And the only way that we can apply, we can understand the revelations of the Word of God directly in context with our war going on with the enemy is through the Spirit. Because it is the Spirit that gave us the Word. It is the Spirit that teaches us the Word. It is the Spirit that gives us the understanding of the application and the wisdom necessary needed in the heat of the battle. And it is the Spirit of God that uses the Word of God to make it the sword that God intended for us to have in the midst of the battle. So indirectly, it's a reference to the Spirit. It's like Jesus, when he was in uh, the, the wilderness and he's been tempted by the devil, you know the story. Each and every time he defended and he took his stand against the temptation of the, of the enemy. How? By quoting Scripture. And when you're in the midst of the spiritual battle and the struggle that you're in and you're going through these immense temptations from the enemy as he's seeking to pull you away from the purpose that God has for your life, it is the Spirit that will bring these scriptures to your mind. It is the Spirit that will help you quote them, recite them. It is the Spirit of God that will help you apply them in the heat of the battle so that you can stand in victory like Christ. For it is the sword of the Spirit. And lastly, talk about praying is also a spiritual weapon that most people sort of overlook. But prayer, I think, is a spiritual weapon. He talks about praying in the spirit, doesn't he? There's a lot of ramifications, a lot of discussions about that, especially differences between us and some of the charismatics and the Pentecostals. But let me say simply this. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26, when you and I in our weakness do not know how to pray, who teaches us to pray? Who? The Holy Spirit. If you don't think the Holy Spirit is an integral part of your prayer life, we need to rethink prayer. Because in the heat, in the moment of the battle, when we desperately need to hear from God, it is the Spirit of God who not only reveals to us how we should pray, but it's the Spirit who helps us to pray, and it's the Spirit who strengthens our prayers, and it's the Spirit who reveals to us the answer to our prayers. The Spirit is intricately involved in our prayer life. 
And he empowers and infuses us in our moments of weakness in exactly the right moment as to know how to pray and what to pray for. He did for Christ. He was in the garden just before his arrest. And he was praying. He said, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And I'm convinced that it was the Spirit of the Lord that came to him at that moment that gave him the strength that he needed to be able to endure the cross. In your moment of weakness, in your time of struggle, when temptation is relentless and won't leave you alone, you find yourself in that rock and that hard place and unable to know how to pray. All you have to do is say, Lord Jesus, enable your spirit in me to teach me how to pray. There was a man not long ago who, his name was David Day. He didn't want to become a deacon in our church. I think I mentioned him before because he didn't want to pray in public. He felt like his prayer life was inadequate. I remember that conversation like it was yesterday, even though it was decades ago. And after our conversation, he understood. Number one, that he wasn't talking to himself, and he wasn't talking to those in the church. He was talking to God. And I think he walked away understanding that he doesn't pray in history. He prays in history. When he was weak, the Spirit would give him the words to, to say in his prayers that would have effect and effect the hearts and the lives of those who were present.